You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the games begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we welcome a special guest in studio, Master Stone Builder, John Aguilar, an innovator of modern stonecraft. Right on. Thanks, guys. Nice. Thanks for coming. Yeah, this is not your first trip to Power Athlete. You were out here with friend of Power Athlete now, I suppose, Brian Callen, comedian. He's building. an old friend. He's a big fan of Power Athlete. He does follow us. Yeah, he has to. Um, yeah. So I've been sending him dick pics. Not my dick. But <laughs> dick, just dick pics. Yeah, ah, just, I'm just, an idiot. Ah, just randomly sending him that stuff. But you met him because I think you were on his podcast. So you 2000. So he used to have a podcast called uh, Mixed or Mixed Martial. Mixed, mixed, mixed Mental yeah, Arts. Mixed Mental Arts. That's right. Uh, if you listen to it. So 2017, I, he had a, he was on with, uh, so Hunter Motz was his partner. I reached out, we were in Santa Barbara at the time because I was working on this project in Truckee. I reached out to Hunter Motz because I heard him on Joe Rogan about tutoring. Wait, you were living in Santa Barbara, but doing a project in Truckee? Flying back and forth. Oh, I was going to yeah. say, that's a hell of a drive. Yeah, yeah. No, flying just on weekends because. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, so we had reached out, I reached out to Hunter, who was Brian's uh, mixed mental arts podcast partner about tutoring our kids. Cause our, my two oldest, we were homeschooling them. Cause he, you know, he's, that's kind of what he specialized in. So I met Hunter down in LA and then that turned into a conversation about stone. And then I did the first one. We talked, somehow we ended up talking about stone on mixed mental arts. And then I went and did a second one with, um, him and Brian at Brian's house back in 2000, early 2018. Hmm. So that's how I met Brian. And then, yeah, that, that was a great podcast. And I don't know why they still don't know why they dropped it. Yeah, coincidentally, I, well, listened, I listened to that episode with John and, and Callan way back when. Well, I think uh, maybe things just get stale after 653 episodes. Maybe you just got to change it up. Well, I don't even know if they got to that. But it was, yeah. it was, well, it was uh, enlightening. Um, but, you know, the, uh, like the stone builder, stone mason, and I know we've got into a little bit of the nuance in terms of like, uh, lexicon in terms, you know, like, hey, one is wet stone, you're into dry stone. Can you give people a greater understanding of more importantly, what you've done, like what you do, how you do it and the historical significance? Because for me, um, I'm always fascinated by some of these lost arts, um, you know, things that, you know, the fact that we don't have the technology to build the pyramids. I mean, so there were master stone mm, builders, yeah. um, you know, not only architects, I mean, the amount of like, yeah, uh, you know, not only mathematics and geometry. I mean, it's it, it's fucking fascinating to yeah. me. So when I met you and you kind of explained it a little bit, I felt like there was a tie to probably something that more people have forgotten than people know. Yeah. So like I, <clears throat> I always like to do schema enhancement for people. So like a for someone who's never heard about this before. So first of all, uh, dry stone means you build without mortar. So there's there's no, it's one hundred percent stone. It's real simple. And even people when I say that still ask me. Where's the rebar? Where's the concrete? So 
Dry stone means building without just 100% stone. And wet masonry, or I call it traditional masonry, is when you use mortar, whether it's a hot lime or it's standard mortar. So you're using that to adhere. So it allows, you know, there's a time and place for everything. Um, I don't, I'm not a purist, like it has to be one or the other. It's the time and place for concrete. But I chose dry stone because what I've realized over the last few years is <clears throat> I'm actually, I'm more of an artist. So I actually, my on projects, I lead with my artist hat and I build with my stone builder hat. I see, I used to think the other way because I started off in landscaping as a contractor. So <clears throat> the way I explain it to people is, uh, you know, dry stone's that, wet stone's this, or wet masonry is this. What happened, you know, kind of historically, the quick timeline is, uh, you know, we have where well, you're, you know, you're talking about the, the wonders of the world. Um, I've been to the pyramids and places like this are that those builds predated a, an era. There's, you know, great event, whether it's younger Dryas or something like that. I mean, it depends on what you believe. I'm, I'm a younger Dryas advocate that that event happened. What are you, are you talking about? The, uh, the, uh, the, the last ice age, um, the, uh, uh the, the great flood. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What, which is actually interesting, um, and I think um, because it was written about in the Bible with Noah, uh, modern historians have just discounted it because the Bible, of course, can't be historically accurate. But every civilization, if you go back far enough, has some incident of some form of great flood, like, you know, the sinking of Atlantis, um, you know, the uh, like, uh, you know, Noah and the, and the great flood in the ark. I mean, that is historical within it. I mean, even for the. Um, what was it? The, uh, the magic of Egypt, the series that, um, they, the geologist guy went to look at the Sphinx and like show the water oh, erosion. Uh, Graham Hancock. Yeah. 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 So I think Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, they both yep. have, you know, they work together. I think those guys have definitively proven this event and these, you know, the outcome of that. So, you know, you have all that past great monumental building <clears throat> and then you have, um, then, you know, you, you, the Romans did what I call imperial masonry. They built with purpose. I mean, they did fantastic stuff. I call it imperial masonry because they had aim, ambition, and purpose. So, you know, the Appian roads, I mean. Well, just, they're still used to yeah, this day. Yeah. I mean, and, I can't drive on the highway without hitting a pothole. Mm-hmm. And yet you go to Europe and there's Roman roads that are still actively used. Yeah, and the aqueducts. I, we, I took the boys and we went to Turkey, Spain, Italy. We climbed on the aqueducts. All these things still exist. So they, I call that imperial masonry. Then you have, and what happened then, there's a, like a steady decline. And that, that gets into what I, we're going to have to talk about beauty at some point as a human need. Um, and then what's where we're at now in that kind of long arc of history is to me, it's kind of like we're in the dark ages. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm after, this has been a slow process because I didn't, we can talk about how I got into this in a little bit, but I didn't start doing anything with dry stone until I was 39. And that happened at a workshop. I was kind of called, so to speak, but you know, the whole purpose of what I'm doing right now, I, and I chose dry stone purposely just because it was so, it's so, the, the parameters on it where you have to stick to the old ancient rules, they're so strict that it's, it's, that's very uh, uh, inviting to have, you know, to ha- I, I, what I describe dry stone to some people, it's subjective engineering meets art. Subjective engineering is the old rules. That's that, you know, these are what I call the sacred rules that were developed a long, long time ago. The art is my expression. It's my style. Okay. So now we're in this point where what I like to say is too many guys who are in the stone building world are living under the 
shadow of the past great builders. And I don't mean that like, I, th- I think it's a negative. Like where everybody's looking backwards, like, wow, look what they built. Look what they did, you know, as if we don't have some sort of potential capacity ourselves. But we have technology that didn't exist then. And we have potential. We can do things. I mean, there's some projects I'd love to do that <clears throat> have never been built before. There are some forms that have never been built historically before. Everything uh, structural has been built. Pyramids, you know, uh, kind of think of building structures, stone upon stone upon stone. One form that's never been built, there's never been any historical count or finding as a, just think of portal, moon gate, mm-hmm. at scale. It's never, there's no, there's no account of that being built beyond a traditional Chinese garden wall mm-hmm. ever. There's no, there's no remnants. There's no historical counts. There's nothing that stands today. I have a theory on why that wasn't built, but everything else has been built. So that's kind of, you know, where I'm at is in my own little way is thinking in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm very future oriented about what's possible. And that's, you know, where I'm at right now. Literally, we were talking about this morning. I'm kind of in this new, you know, point moving down to Texas. I see things are so much bigger here and the possibilities is I'm, I'm trying to explore how to go next level um, with what's possible and what can be done with technologies. And, um, in, and while so many guys are just looking at the past and, and I, I mean, I, I like reading about, you know, what Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, these guys do, but I just not, I'm not that interested in the, the backwards thing. Uh, that's great, but I'm, um, I'm just more for does that make sense? More no, I do. Yeah. it makes a ton of sense. I think if uh, what I what I find a bit confusing is um, like the definitive nature of history where we don't know. I mean, to say that there wasn't some form of highly advanced civilization that existed and then got pounded into the sands of time that we just haven't found it seems preposterous to me that, that people <clears throat> won't kind of well, grant that. One thing that's wild is we, I was talking with some guy about this the other day. And you go to any of my job sites that I've built over the last 18 years, any guys, there's going to be, if you're, if you're 300 years out from now and you go back to any of my job sites, it's so easy to do like forensics on it. You can, you'll find shards. You'll find some of us leave tools or chisels inside the wall. We leave things in there kind of as little, uh, yeah, not, uh, time capsules. Know, kind of time capsules. Yeah. Some people will, uh, will even do a time capsule, but I've always purposely left things in there. Just, you know, but you go to these, pyramids or you go to, I was in Peru two years ago. Um, um, I was in, uh, uh, Machu Picchu. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I never make it in Machu Picchu because it's right before the lockdown. So I was in Saxon woman in Cusco. Um, cause I was there to do ayahuasca, but, um, um, there's no remnants. There's no, there's no tools left. I don't even think, I think a lot of these places are not even, there's not even stone shards and you'll find that at any of our job sites there. Why do you think that is? Don't, I have no idea, man. No idea. Well, I mean, they found the quarries where the stone came from for um, for Egypt. And if you go down the Nile, there's actually test sites. There's lesser known pyramids. And they have some really interesting things that uh, they can't explain. Like they have these huge fire pits. And they found a way to effectively heat the granite in such a way that they could cut it, which we still don't know how they did it because that technology doesn't necessarily exist. Or even the mortar, which they yeah. don't know you know, what it's, what it's composed of. We can't remake it. So, I mean, there's some fascinating stuff where we see evolution, but like with a lot of these things, 
Um, I just think that uh, maybe, you know, time or the jungle or different things have just, I mean, like, you know, what is it? Uh, Gobateki. I don't know. I'm messing butchering yeah, that name. Gobletek. Yeah. yeah Gobletek. I think it's yeah. um, in Turkey. Yeah. I mean, that was like finding uh, 747 underneath the pyramid. Yeah. I mean, there were stone structures that were so monolithic, these amazing things uh, at a time that they date to where we didn't have the wheel. So they say. Uh, you know, man was still scratching his ass as a, you know, a hunter gatherer. And then all of a sudden they have this incredible monolithic deal that just pops out of nowhere that they have no explanation for. And instead of being like, Hey, we don't know anything. They just kind of like avoid it. Yeah. I mean, uh, in, in, uh, Peru, you know, there's a, there's a belief or in some, I don't know if it's been proven, but it looks like the stones met been, it was made, it was softened <clears throat> and it became malleable to shape it. Because well, and, and then the other one we talked about, um, this is the one that I, I can't figure out on Machu Picchu because they know where the stones came from. They have no rope marks. There's nothing like, like all of a sudden they somehow found a way to levitate stones. And I think we discussed it that it, either they had some form of balloons or sound or something crazy. Sound? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Ask him about it. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about this because I always ask because like one of the things that I was curious with Machu Picchu is like, are there tracks? Are there like uh, rope marks? I mean, because they had to drag these stones up into, into the mountains. How did they get the stones there? And that was one of the things that they didn't necessarily have an explanation for. They were like, well you know, this quarry was X amount of feet below. We know where they cut them from and then they got up there, but that there's no marks that allow us to know how they got the stones. So I asked him about it and you said, well, I think it makes a lot of sense just because we, and just because we can't explain it doesn't rule out a possibility in, and uh, using sound vibration. There's little tests now it can be done on small objects. I absolutely believe that it was uh didn't, Some sort of didn't you tell me that um, you guys are able to move massive stones with like, uh, what was it like? Was it um, uh, vibration or some form of like something? Um, no, not. I mean, <clears throat> and I'm, I know there's guys. I know there's guys who are able to move small objects right now with vibration. Um, but uh, there's a guy like in the Coral Gable Castle in yeah. Florida yeah. that was built in the early 20th century. It's newspaper documented. Yeah. One guy, small little Ukrainian guy, built the whole Coral Gable Castle. They had a huge tripod at the tripod's a box. He wore a device around his neck. Yep. He worked by himself at night and he moved 20 and 30 ton stones by himself at night mm -hmm. using vibration. Oh, and, it, it's, it, it's incredible. And then he passed away without ever passing forward they, the technology. And if you go there, um, I never physically went, but we drove past it and, and like, it was always one of those things when I lived in Florida, we were going to go. Do you know, he had to move it at one point. I can't remember why he had to move the site and he moved it overnight on the truck. A truck came in empty, started moving pieces, but yeah, he worked by himself Yeah, for the most part. And uh, so he was observed to have a device around his neck and then this massive tripod with these, you know, gears and mechanisms and, <clears throat> but the things he was able to do. So you're looking at it. These are, he did by himself. Yeah. A little dude all by himself without ever, no help, nothing. Cut everything, figured out can, how to do I it. I can tell you that that's, uh, <clears throat> that's not something I can do by myself right there. Looking at that. I can, we could do that, but not by ourselves. Yeah. Without, with cranes yeah. and, and huge, mm -hmm. huge pieces of equipment. So, yeah. So I, you know, the technology's there just because we don't understand didn't mean they exist. I think that's a lot of hubris in that thought. So I think it was, uh, had, you know, I think there was levitation and that, you know, that doesn't seem too far fetched for me, but, uh, you know, during one of these cataclysmic events, you know, 
technologies were lost. And I think I just, in the end, I just kind of absorb it. I'm like, I think it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's awesome to kind of dwell and, and just sink into that well, mystery. And then, I think what's cool is it connects you to the past. Yeah. And I think that's um, something we really struggle with. I mean, um, you know, uh, earlier, I think it was last year, we had to do uh, some genealogy for the kids for school. And so my daughter came home and she's like, you know, uh, I don't, you know, here's this genealogy deal. Can you help me figure this out? And I sat down and got onto like all these different genealogy pages. And of course, like, she's like, I can only go back like one generation. And I was like, just leave it here, go to school. So after like 12 hours later, I basically mapped us back like 600 years, but there was a, a ton of information that had, um, you know, we had been told by grandparents or other people that didn't match up, found all this other information that like opened up for my mom, like talking to my mom, she's like, I didn't know half of the stuff that you told me. So I think it connects us to longer generations and it connects us to the past, which I think gives us historical precedence and gives us a vision that we're not just these solo free agents existing within time. We're part of a lineage that has existed for a ton of time. And I think that's what's fascinating on it is here is this. Um, I mean, when you explained it to me, I like didn't necessarily even make a distinction between like mortar, dry stone. Like I just figured like uh, stone. And, and now that I drive around here in Texas, I see a bunch of hand built stone walls. Yeah. And you just, yeah, yeah, just, one. yeah, just, just driving that, that yeah. massive one. Um, and so seeing it and then having a, you know, a little bit of understanding of what you guys built with that little wall bench yeah. up there and realizing like, holy shit, man, first they had to find all these stones and they had to arrange them in such a way. And now they're actually in some form of, you know, deal where, you know, 100, 200, 300 years from now, if something happens, you come back and you're going to see the stone wall and you're going to know that somebody intentionally put this here. Oh, yeah. That's, so I think what's what gets really fascinating about dry stone in particular. Um, so I, I lived in, uh, we can talk about how I got into it later, but I lived in Jerusalem after the Marine Corps for a year and I used to walk down the old city every Shabbat. <clears throat> I kind of think that's where the seed was planted, but those, some of those limestone blocks are two tons up to 30 tons, massive, you know, you know, that was the Kotel, the Western wall. Um, Which is the wall that, for the temple, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically it's a retaining wall and then the temple yeah, mounts. But, oh. but, but the temple was destroyed. So that's like, yeah, I'm saying now that now on the backside is where the, uh, the dome of the rock is. And that's, the, yeah. you know, <clears throat> so that's like there. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, that's like um, like when you see them praying, like, yep. like touching the wall. That's their connection to like is it the the second temple or the it's, first temple? Yeah, the second temple. The second temple. Yeah, I was a goy boy, so that means Gentile boy. So, but I, I was fascinated, you know, fascinated with that place. I would just sit there, have pictures of me just sitting there, you know, and it's all the lime, the worn limestone, and so. <clears throat> but you think about this as I always tell people. I've never met a human who doesn't love stone, and I don't meet humans who fly around to look at wood structures. What do people fly around to? They fly around to look at stone. Unless it's, it's a Taj Mahal. Isn't the Taj Mahal all wood? It, no, it's, it's all stone. I thought the Taj Mahal was all wood. Mm, no, it's oh. stone. It's, the Taj Mahal is all stone. Yeah. Oh, shit. yeah. I always thought it was a wood structure because they said there's no nail on the Taj Mahal. It was, it was all lap joints and fitted together. You want to yeah, look at the up. inside? Uh -huh. Um it was built as, I think, as a, as a, uh, not a, um, well, I mean, look at Stonehenge. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, just a bunch of random stones, which is hilarious because people get all weird on it and they forget that those stones were laying down and some farmer brought out a yeah. crane and just reassembled yeah. them when what he thought it looked like. Got, it got reassembled. But, you know, people fly around to look at, to look at stone. So stone as I think it's, it's, it's a reason why I think people are so fascinated with stone and why is that I think maybe on a cellular level or something, 
I'm not going to get artificially deep with it, that we know we wouldn't exist without the rock mantle, the rock crust underneath us. So then all of a sudden Mother Earth creates igneous stone is basalton and uh, granite. So that's that's lava. Lava stone that comes up. It's molten lava that comes up and cools. Then you have sedimentary and that's your limestones and sandstone. And then you have uh, metamorphic and that's like any of those igneous and sedimentary that go through more heat and more pressure that becomes like limestone eventually can become marble. Sandstone can become quartzite. Mm-hmm. So that's metamorphic. <clears throat> all of a sudden you have all these this abundant material when these gorgeous colors and we get to build with that for legacy to create legacy or to create function. And I think that's, what's really fascinating about all this. And, you know, what's interesting though, is getting, I get a lot of young guys on Instagram reach out. I'm talking a lot of guys, you know, twenties, early twenties, late twenties. They want to explore getting into this field because there's something so real about it for them. There's something they want. I mean, I've had young guys actually say, I want to do something meaningful with purpose with my hands and physical. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then that's, you know, that's, a, that's the interesting part about dry stone versus wet traditional work is dry stone can be very physical. And it's one of my physical trades. You know, two of my projects before that big one in Truckee in 2000, 2016 through 2017, we had no uh, machine access. <clears throat> so everything was... Uh, that's where we were doing, you know, dollying 200 pound cornerstones, hundred yards through the woods, you know, and that's where we're. What was the project? Um, the, the first one with no machine access was the Colorado portal project. That's the Moongate. Mm-hmm. I, I call them portals. And, uh, so, you know, we were doing just old techniques, you know, putting two by fours and pipes and moving stones like that. And then cribbing, that's where you do the kind of seesaw method with uh, wood mm-hmm. and then so it's all and I have I have these I have these videos on YouTube and stuff where we fast forwarded it to music and then uh, the second one which was the Kiva and that's also in Durango Colorado we didn't have uh, any machine access that was just on two chisels and hammers and dollies so it's very physical so you know that's I, there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in the physicality of this trade as well as that the end result of your physical efforts can be something beautiful, you know? So well, there, there's also an eternal piece, the idea that stands the test of time that, you know, I mean, if, uh, if you were going to try to imprint information to hand down through the generations, the best way to do it is through stone and through some form of stone structure. Like I remember, I think it was uh, Graham Hancock that talked about, um, the, uh, dimensions of the great pyramid at Giza, if you times that by like 42,500 effectively gives you the circumference and all the different dimensions of the earth, you know, and if you were going to try to find a way to capture that information and hold it for eternity, what's the best way to do it? Create the most stable structure yeah. on the planet that'll never, I mean, you know, the, the age old joke is the only thing that time's afraid of are the pyramids. Yeah. So mathematics. Well, the Taj Mahal's made of marble. Yeah. It's a marble. And, oh. <laughs> and they killed all the people that, designed it, created it, and all the craftsmen oh, well, had their, their hands, hands cut off. So they couldn't create again. Yeah. So Thanks, Jamie. I thought it was, okay, so it's yeah. made of marble. Interesting. Yeah. I so, thought it was and then marble is a metamorphic stone from limestone. So that just mm-hmm. means it's gone through more uh, earth pressure and heat. And then, you know, what's fascinating, a lot of people listening, limestone is calcium carbonate seashells. Whoa, lots yeah. of limestone here in the hill country. You know, yeah, well, you think about in Indiana where I grew up in, Southern Indiana, you have two, three hundred foot uh, 
limestone quarries, that means at some point that was beneath, that was a sea. So the 10,000 year creation thing doesn't really jive there. Well, uh, I heard a pretty good one that um, somebody was like, you know, proved to me that the earth isn't 6,000 years old and the guys like lead and go through like the, like, like the different like metamorphosis that has to happen for lead to exist puts us at like, you know, 6 billion years. Like, Hey, lead starts as this, this, and this. So the fact that we have lead pencils, if I can <laughs> choose your thing and I, I'm going to do a terrible job of going through the evolution of it, but it was, you know, I mean, it, like, you know, the idea that uh, I always loved, um, you know, people being like, oh, fossils were put there to trick us. Yeah. And I'm like. Test our faith. That's a lot. There's a lot of fossils. Yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, and then you think about Texas, we're sitting on, we are, we are a limestone bedrock and it goes under the Gulf all the way to the Yucatan Peninsula. And that's all limestone as well. You ever been out to Tulum? Mm -hmm. You've been to Tulum? Oh my God. There you go. But that's it's it's just like hill country with jungle, yeah. Or not hill country. It's more like you know, it's more like a dripping springs with the jungle. Yeah, I mean, what's wild is they have these what's called cenotes, which are these um, like the because the ground is all I mean, it's limestone. Just yeah, just, yeah it's all rock. Yeah. So nothing really exists, and so what happens is, is when it rains, uh, all the water collects in these underground caverns that are they called cenotes, and uh, the Mayans believe that that cenote was the connection to the underworld. But I mean, it was cool. We went to Tulum. We got to go visit, and you jump off, and you see them. And you know, if you click on Instagram, like every influencer in the world, like yeah. their mecca is like Tulum, so they can like take pictures with like. Oh, is this the place with the jungle weight room? Yeah. This yeah. is the Tulum jungle weight room, and then everywhere you go, there's some like piece of art that you can take pictures of for your Instagram page, and then you know, I worked out at that gym. At that jungle. Yeah, we yeah. we went by it, it's and fun. I was trying so, to get Kate know, to go in, and she had wanted no part of it. Yeah, it was, was a little like, bit. It was a little too uh, Flintstone-ish, and you know, there were there were Instagram influencers from Russia. The uh, yeah, it was there yeah. these guys out there, and they go pump up, and they go on the beach and film, and it gets it just makes the whole process kind of worse. Uh, yeah, when as we were in Tulum, it just looked so fucking just uh, like like everywhere you go, somebody's posing for something, you know. It would but be, it'd the, be great for Instagrammers in the wild. But the food, food is out of this world. Yeah, food was good. Uh, they just had a, you know, the, um, the mob or uh, yeah, the, the cartel. cartel wasn't real big there, but now they no. are because they're dealing a lot of drugs. And so now they have a bunch of shootings and films that nearly as safe as it used to be. So it's a good time for you to go. Probably not. So when I was a kid, we went to Mexico City. So one of my dad's, uh, my dad was a lawyer. One of the guys he worked with a ton was a lawyer in Mexico and also a senator. So we got to go to Mexico City for his wedding. And we got to go to uh, the huge pyramids um, in Mexico City. I think it was the sun and the moon pyramid. And what was wild is back then you could actually climb to the top where they have an altar where they you know, mm -hmm. sacrifice like 30,000 people in a day. And so my brothers and I somewhere have pictures of us like basically reenacting this, of course, because we're laying there trying to pretend we stand each other. We raced up and down. And um, then we ended up going to Chichen Itza, which yeah. was pretty amazing. In Tulum. Um, yeah. Or it's, it's outside Tulum. Yeah. Um, but just like you're talking about stone structures. Well, I went, we went, I went there too, but I have a critique of Chichen Itza. So um, when I went there, this is 2000. Did you go for the big rave? Like no, they have no, this, uh, they have a huge rave there. No, That's it just like, felt, it felt dark to me, man. Like, uh, there's a lot yeah, of evil. Dark. Yeah. Because, it's, uh, there's a lot it of was, death. It was, it was, you know, the Mayan culture was, you know, they, they, they lived around fear, fear that if there wasn't enough, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically the sun, you know, the, the sun's existence in time and the cycles were based off, you know, 
how much, you know, I guess at some point someone decided it was blood. It was sacrifices is what fed this cycle. Yeah. <clears throat> it's probably not the best way to explain it, but that's essentially, so it, it's a fear base. And so uh, Chichen Itza and, and the, all the structures around there, when I was there, because I'm a pretty intuitive and motive dude, is I've, it just felt dark. Yeah. And what's interesting, and while, while the structures are fantastic in terms of their execution, their astronomical lining, the, the aesthetics of them, I mean, you know, I looked at, I looked at, their, at their bond pattern. Bond pattern is how a stone's laid in conjunction with another stone above or underneath it. Their bond pattern's off. It has running joints. Running joints is a big no-no. <clears throat> and I always thought, and also they didn't have, um, allegedly they didn't have any wheeled structures at the time. So I could see, I was looking at all the pieces thinking, I probably saw pieces no bigger than what three men could move. Everything was one to two man stones with some sort of probably basket or something like that. But while the you know the mathematics the alignment and all that was fantastic, it 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 was both dark to me, and also the the uh, uh, pavers that's the outside facade were were not they weren't done well. And I always think that you can see structures built historically that were done during good times for beauty for the mm. possibility of, <clears throat> and then then if you walk if you climb up the big one there at Chichen Itza which we did the rise run mm -hmm. ratio super steep yeah it's it's is actually pretty uh, freaky yeah no did you uh, go up the top? yeah uh, that, I, I, that's for and it has to it has to be be so that they were literally throwing bodies so off is the only one the yeah they would roll like like so the the only thing like in all the pyramids we climbed in Mexico the only thing that was amazing was as we were climbing down or even climbing up like trying to pick a line where nobody was behind you. So as we were coming down, there was a whole bunch of people. We like picked a different line because the fallers. Yeah. Well, fallers, but they, <laughs> uh, and if somebody falls, they don't stop because the, <laughs> yeah. So, so what they were doing, and I think in, I can't remember if it was Chichen Itza or which one, but allegedly goes that they, they sacrificed 30,000 people so that they could bathe the entire ever or at in once one day, yeah, a in one day so that they could bathe the entire structure in blood. So they started slitting throats and just murdering. And like allegedly the way it goes. They, it's they, a bold strategy, Cotton. So, but the way that the steps are laid out is if you toss a body, and I know this because as we were coming down, there was a fat tourist that was wearing oh flip-flops and the lady slipped. <gasps> and dude, she started going and was picking up speed and thank God somebody like fucking stopped her. But I remember thinking Sliding like, or rolling? She started sliding mm -hmm. and then she like fell on this and then like, you know, some people like stopped her. But it was interesting how quickly it, and I, and like, and I remember my daughter was like, why are these steps so steep? I'm like, so you can throw people from the top and get to the bottom. We, yeah, I mean, even I went, I went down like on all fours. Yeah, <clears throat> like you kind yeah, of slide steep. down. Yeah, and it's... It, so yeah. you think that that's what... I well, mean, they're the, steep and they're really narrow. So yeah. like, it's... Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. In felt that, dark. Uh, it just felt dark to me. That was what was part of uh, like the idea with the pyramids. was like, oh, slaves built this. And like, slaves didn't build this. There's no way that anything that's built with this much, like you can't put a whip to somebody's back to build this. Well, even if it was, there was it was still built with the intention of something glorious, you know, something you know that's and that's a different intention, you know. Just and then in Peru, the same thing is built. You know, I, I I totally believe because of the high seismic activity in Peru, there the interlocking joinery, it's it's unique in the world, um, is built for uh, um, the earthquake activity there. But it was still built as, you know, it was potential. It was also beautiful. So I think you kind of get that feel. And, you know, and that's what, 
where we're at now. Well, but I mean, if, if you really look at um, that Mayan culture is extended. I mean, if you look at the cartels, all the cartels and all that stuff are all based on death cults. Yep. So they worship, uh, um, you know, like, uh, what is it? Um, uh, what is it? Like the uh, basically the mother of death. It's like a Dias, it's a Dias de las Muertas, but like they, they're, they're all death cults. So they use a lot of imagery of like skulls and death and, uh, and it extends from the Mayans because, you know, I mean, that's their culture. So what's hilarious, and I know this because uh, my brother, who's a lawyer, had uh, some cases with some some of this stuff. And so we went through all the case stuff just for the imagery, and I'm fascinated by it. But it's like this is this is the foundation of their culture. This is how they've extended this idea of killing and sacrifices. This, this has been part of their culture mm-hmm. since the beginning. So the fact that we're surprised by it is more interesting than than you know than not didn't know that yeah scary dudes pretty wild yeah well let's take us take us back john former marine and movement as training has always been a part of your life and then our conversations out uh, out up top when you were building with callan was based around just your value of movement beauty and essentially all you have to do on the job is lift heavy, awkward things through all planes of motion that could potentially hurt you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'll draw that line from when I was 14 to now. It's an interesting one. So when I was 14, it was right after the uh, the 1983 Beirut bombings in uh, Lebanon, the Marine barracks, 283 guys died. For some reason, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up the son of a Baptist preacher. We had no TV, nothing. I mean... I don't know. I saw it in the newspaper for some reason that I told my mom at piano lessons, like, I'm going to the Marine Corps. Never changed my mind. So I started training and I started doing pull-ups on a tree. 22 years ago, I went back. That tree, still, the bark was still smooth, <clears throat> you know, because I did so many pull-ups. So when I was 14, I started my own training program and I just did it based off what their fitness tests were, etc. <clears throat> so I did that from 14 to 19. You know, and I was, I was, I mean, it didn't matter, winter, whatever, I was concentrating. And it's funny, because when I, right before I went to the Marine Corps, I thought two miles, oh my God, three miles. That was just, it was, I, I couldn't even imagine, it was so hard. But I ended up getting like the, you know, PFT or of the platoon series and uh, um, in Marine Corps. But what was really cool was when I went, when I got in the Marines, I developed a yes policy for myself, meaning say yes to any opportunity. And so I got this in, in boot camp. I got this opportunity to, I signed up to be infantry because I wanted to go in the reconnaissance, force reconnaissance. But I got this opportunity to go to language school and switch out to the signals intelligence field. So following my own advice, I said yes. And I ended up uh, going, um, joining this uh, radio reconnaissance team. And we worked with force recon. So we had to do a lot of the same schools, you know, um, and, you know, and had, to, had the same capacities as them. We just weren't door kickers. We were on the tactical SIGINT side. So um, once I got through that selection with these guys, um, we were we a six-man team attached to a force recon platoon. And that's like for people out there, the old force reconnaissance of the Marine Corps was like the Navy SEAL of that time. And uh, so it was a big deal because that's all I ever wanted to do. I mean, my when I was 14, when I was 16, I laid out my life. My life plan was a career in the military and eventually to switch to the army. And then uh, I wanted to get into Delta ever since I was 16 years old. That was my, I mean, I had it. I had everything laid out. Marine Corps first. A lot of guys wanted to, 
a lot of guys in the uh, SF community in the, in the army back in the eighties and nineties would go in the Marine Corps first and then you switch out and you can kind of like do a pipeline into the, well, Delta recruits from all the all branches of services. Yeah, no, back then I don't think they did, but you could cross, you could, once you leave the Marine Corps, you can go to any branch of the mm-hmm. service without going back. See, I, when I was in boot camp, I had a former Air Force staff sergeant who had to start back over and go to boot camp. Marine Corps just doesn't allow that. So anyways, I developed this yes policy. So I said yes to everything. Um, you know, uh, all of a sudden, what was cool about the Marine Corps, at least when I was in and my unit, is there's like basically like a chalkboard. It's almost like a just a uh, um, dry eraser board. They would just write up a school. Just who wants to go to survival school, Greenbury Survival School? Who wants to go to combat swimmer school? I said yes to everything I could. And in that short period of time, like when I when I went to boot camp, I was 145 pounds. A year and a half later, I was 180. I was jacked too. I have pictures of me. I just post them on Instagram. Not for I I, I post that because. I'm seeing more and more young guys who just completely lack not just strength, they lack, they lack musc- muscularity. And I'm like, you know, I'm 53 now, man. I should not be just, you know, you're 22 at your prime. You know, when I went and uh, in, that was 18 months, I went, I put on 35 pounds. And I, that, was my, that was my potential. I never could exceed that. <clears throat> I did that with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. Yeah, huge. You remember, you remember that thing? Yeah. Oh, we still got it. Yeah, we still got yeah. it. Still it so it's, that, that it's was, in that orange box right out there. I mean, Tex looks at it at least at twice a day. So that was my that was fire. That was my that was my thing, I and mean, that's that's all I did. So, you know, on the on the physicality route, what I explored, what was so cool, is in the Marine Corps gave me ample opportunity to push the limits and the boundaries. I went to amphibious reconnaissance school. I learned how to swim, you know, swim at night, swim out in the ocean, swim in packs, uh, 20 mile runs, 10 miles with sandbag uh, runs, stuff like that. Uh, <clears throat> and then I pushed myself in the gym. Um, you know, I just wanted to get big because you're 19, 20 years old and all of a sudden you're in this environment that just says, just, you know, that's all you do. Like that's, you know, you eat, you train and you work out. I mean, it's all, so it's this beautiful environment for a young guy with a lot of ambition to just explore the physicality. Um, and especially when units like uh, Force Recon and our Radio Constance unit, that was expected. You know, I remember watching these guys, like they're uh, probably 10 year NCOs in Force Recon running barefoot and just silkies. So I tried that. They would just <laughs> run barefoot along the side of the road. I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to do barefoot. Um, I didn't do, it kind of hurt, but um, just watching these guys, you know, constantly. And so that environment, I, I, it really habituated in me how important that was. But I also, one thing I did really smart when I was 19, I did, I called it flexibility training back then. I did two to three hours a week. Never had any major injuries ever. And I realized range of motion, mobility, all that was super important along with what I, everything else I was doing. So I did four years of that, went to all these great schools, all this training. And also, you know, by the end of that, I, was, I could do 20 miles or, or um, uh, you know, 325, 400-pound deadlifts, plus swimming the ocean a mile. These were all norms at that point. These were like benchmarks. Now it's like, okay, what can I do beyond that? So, you know, that continued. Um, <clears throat> I never stopped, never have stopped ever. You know, and then 
um, you know, and I went, I'll, I'll talk about what happened in my 20s as far as the transition with the Army, but I want to get to kind of now, because I don't, I think it's real important, is uh, what I saw as I, when I got my, I, I ended up not doing a career for a lot of reasons. And when I got into my 30s and I started landscaping, and then I got into stone heavy work, and that was in 2007. I met these two masons, and these guys, one was an old buddy from high school, and another was this guy in Seattle, and they both had big crews. And I said, you know, I asked them, because, you know, a lot of masons don't ever want to get out of the field. They love being hands-on. And Tom, I remember Tom telling me, you know, he had a back injury, because um, he tried to catch a stone rolling down the back of a dump truck as it was up. And the other guy... Um, the other guy just was got got so big that he had to go to become an office guy, right? What I learned from these guys was, if you love that work, not to grow too much, but two, the physicality. A lot of these guys, what I realized, a lot of these guys um, were never off. They're always on, either you know doing the stonework or they never did anything in their downtime. And then you go out cold, mm-hmm. and you go out to lift. Sometimes you know. You can lift a 220 stone just a little bit to get so someone can get a wedge under it. Boom, they're done. So I applied all that stuff that I learned in my 20s, you know, as far as as smart training as I could with flexibility training every time I had any downtime. And then what happened where I think I think the big switch for me was in 2013, I went to outdoor training only. That was all uh, what I called it was uh, C2 training. I still call it C2 competency and capacity. So I made that up because it was kind of like my purpose for why I work out. It went from, you know, 20 year old ego stuff being built to, I was 38, 39, 40 when I really started getting into the dry stone. It's like, you know, I want competency and capacity, but that wasn't just for stone. See, I was in, um, I was in Bosnia teaching English when I was 30 years old. And uh, this is another kind of like benchmark moment. And I, Flew out of the country, came back in. It's January in Banja Luka, Republika Srpska. Freaking cold, probably zero degrees. I got in late. I was supposed to stay at this uh, this uh, NGO lady, this American's house. Right? She said, "Hey, I'll leave the front door open." So <clears throat> I spoke Serbian, but not. But the taxi guy dropped me off, and it was a new neighborhood. Literally like January, zero degrees. She wasn't there. She locked the doors, <sighs> and I was like, "Fuck, man!" And so. I could see lights on in their second story because a lot of them had two to three story uh, uh, kind of like block and brick houses, but they had steel uh, uh, concrete balconies with steel um, trellises. So they have flat top garages. So what I did is I, I, I needed to get in the back, but I couldn't get in the back without going over the garage. So I jumped up, did a dead hang, you know, pull up, whatever you call this one. Muscle up. Muscle up over the garage in the dark dragged my bag went dropped it on the backside no visibility it was a it was a cloudy night i could hear like boom it's only about 10 feet dropped kind of did a parachute landing fall and then they had steel gutters that were fastened to the uh, wall so i i shimmied up the steel gutter grabbed that first balcony like that dead hang went up the trellis flopped over and her door was open and i'm like not a big deal in terms it wasn't life or death but what it showed me was like I don't know what I would have done that night because I had no resources I had no money um, 
I didn't know anybody in the neighborhood. If I couldn't have done that, I don't, I'm not sure what I would have done. So that kind of carried through. And so that was, that's my kind of capacity and competency thing because I'd also, at that time, so by 40, I had four kids. And, you know, and I, I, had, I remember I had seen a, a, a story about a guy online who went out to the water to save his two kids but died because he couldn't swim. But he, he, did, he did the right thing. He took the right action. Did the kids live? Uh, I don't know. I don't oh, know. my God. But I, mean, I, remember, I remember reading how, I remember a couple of these where the man took right action but didn't either have the physicality, or yeah. either overweight, you know, or couldn't swim or couldn't bring him in. And so I started thinking about, I need to maintain, I want that, but also for my work. So that's when, that's when I kind of developed this C2 thing. And then everything after that went outdoors. And then that's when I started doing uh, uh, log, you know, log work, tire work. I just figured it out on my own. But then I started doing just weird things like picking stones up from behind. I didn't know anything about transverse plane or anything. Mm-hmm. I just started thinking of what do I do at a job site? I'll do that a little more extreme so that when I go to the job site, I don't, I'm habituated to a proper motion. Like, you know, I always have this thing I look up before I lift just to put my cervical back into the proper, you know, I don't know if that's correct, but that's what I do. I lift, I look up, and then I pick a stone up. <clears throat> and then I, we always tell, you know, we always told the guys is, you know, I see them bend over, I say stop, and then I'd have them do three to five rounds like that, and I'd, I'd, I'd tap their back like that. So now I've got a gym, outdoor gym in Lockhart. I got a lot smarter. Um, started watching this dude, uh, Sergeant Mack, on Instagram. He is a uh, former Delta Force guy that I actually met in language school a long time ago. He does a lot of this transverse plane stuff. So I started doing all this stuff where putting like a line, that waist height, pick up a stone going under mm-hmm. and up around it. Um, you know, I have a tire and I'll, I'll, a big tire and I'll, I'll hold this stone, dead arm it, because I, I had to learn to do that because I was, uh, I was, um, I used to have a really bad habit of holding stones up here and as my, uh, what do you call these? Cervical. Oh, um, scalenes. Yeah, your scalenes. Oh man, they were so tight that I was having all this nerve dysfunction from all this. So I, I you know, I, I dead arm it and I, what I do is I walk in and out of this tire constantly, in and out of the tire constantly, or sometimes I'll lift a stone up. And I've had to do pretty much everything I've trained, I've had to do on a job site. On the, the last one we did in, in uh, Austin was up on top of a house. We did all this stone work up on top of a building. Um, this this three-dimensional stone art roof deck. And I'm up there laughing one day how everything I train I've had to do up there because we had a literal obstacle course to get stone around. I'm, I'm walking backwards holding a stone that's, you know, it's probably a 3,000 pound or 3,000 piece dollar value stone. And I have to walk backwards and I, you know, I make sure we don't drop it. So that's kind of like uh, my training now is just capacity competency. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's how I apply it at the job site so that I'm not, when I get sloppy, it's, it's kind of good sloppy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you're actually doing the training that is allowing you to execute your task. Um, you know, something we've talked about at Power Athletes since day one is, is the training allowing you to uh, fulfill your task and your purpose? You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, you'll see training stuff. And I think, 
for better or worse, social media has really given people a better understanding. But, you know, as a, as a football player, if the training didn't allow me to flourish as a football player, then, you know, we just didn't make the cut. And uh, a lot of times within the training deal, if you don't have some physical test for your training, how do you know whether or not you're hitting the mark? Uh, just looking at, you know, do I physically look better? I mean, like, it's so hard to to see changes over the course of a day within the mirror. I mean, but to physically say, hey, I did this and I can do this, opposed from somebody could do this and I can do this. Now that becomes a greater representation of that. And are you uh, are you healthy? Are you able to move? Are you dynamic? I mean, all these things come into play. And are you avoiding injury? You yeah. know, I mean, to be 53, I keep thinking as you're talking about it, Rudy Reyes has got to be about the same age. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you ever ran into Rudy about I, that time. I've, I've seen him. Um, the, uh, the legend of Rudy Reyes. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't. Uh, he was. Uh, I think he was uh, Pendleton. I was Campbell June, second uh, Marine Division. So he was out. Pretty sure he was uh, California guy. Yeah, yeah. California. Because Marine Corps has three. He's got first division, you know, California second, North Carolina third is Okinawa, and you're kind of. I mean, when you're just doing four years, you're basically at that point. Yeah. Um, but no, he was. Yeah, he was definitely in when I was in. Yeah. He was in, uh, I think, Battalion Recon. Yeah. So he, uh, and then he's, you know, and what, is, what does he do now? Just, uh, Rudy's on a TV show. Um, it? It's called, is it like the UK Selection? SOS. SOS. So what they do is, uh, it's over in the UK. SAS? SAS. Yeah. Well, so what they do is they find people that are emotionally broken. That's the first line to describe them. Yeah, they take people that are emotionally broken, I think, and then they put them into this Where selection pipeline. Yeah, just everywhere. <laughs> and they put them into selection process, and I think they have, uh, who is it, um, Kevin Fox? Jason Fox. Jason Fox, Rudy, and then a few others. And then they have these in, these individuals as kind of your your DI, your, uh, you know, um, I don't know what you call them, like a running selection almost. And then I think like the person that makes it to the very end through all these challenges is kind of a biggest loser survivor meets America's got talent kind of a thing, but it's a huge show in the UK. And the way we know it's a huge show in the UK is Harry Heppenstall, who does, who's, uh, you know, one of the legs of the tripod for power athlete is based out of the UK in, in Manchester and is like Rudy's on every tabloid on every bus. Like he is a huge, huge star in the UK because he's so not English. I know. Yeah, yeah. And the tabloids. Rudy's Rudy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Rudy Reyes is like, there is no pretending to be Rudy Reyes. Yeah. So much so in the show, the Generation Kill yeah. about his unit, he played himself because yeah. they couldn't find an actor well, to represent him. Well, they brought on him as a, um, I guess, as a kind uh, of a consultant. Yeah, as a consultant. Yeah. And then finally they were like, you're just going to have to pay you because we can't find anybody. Yeah, there, there were cats like that in the Marine Corps. I remember in Force Recon team, seven platoon. There's these two dudes, Mo and Dog. And Mo and Dog had zero respect for anybody. They didn't give a fuck. And I remember they both shaved their head, but they left a tuft here. A little tuft, just to say fuck it. And they, they, they yeah, Mo and Dog, man. You go in, uh, and you can't, you can't make these guys up. And there's, I love those guys. I mean, that's what's so wild about the military. Like uh, I've characters. always said if, um, uh, so we were very fortunate to do a lot of work with the military. And it's, uh, it's a big black hole that they throw money into. And I mean, it's, it's a super confusing. I mean, like the, you know, the fact that it employs people and the contracting piece. I've always said if you were going to really streamline this thing, you just make it a whole bunch of Marines. Oh, well, I mean, if we're <laughs> testing for fitness, Marines the can pull do- up. Well, that's why it's tough to be, uh, 
it's hard to have a fat ass and do pull-ups. So that's one thing we always loved about the Marines is they always had pull-ups, which means they couldn't have fat asses. And the best thing that I love about Marines is even when you meet old Marines, they still tell you that they're a Marine. Yeah. Like you'll meet like a 60 year old dude and he'll introduce himself as a Marine and you're like, I, I, I can fucking see it. You got yeah. the same haircut. They still are pretty fit. Like they identify like that well, Marine thing is yeah. like indoctrinated into their entire life. It's interesting. So one of the other things, start watching out for this when you're driving. Most Marine veterans will just put the dick decal. It's the Eagle Globe and Anchor mm-hmm. yeah. uh-huh. on their left side driver's back door. Most of most of them. That's I have it on all our vehicles. Even my daughter, I call it. It's her get out of uh, speeding ticket. Thing. Why the left side? I, I don't know. I think it's because that's where you know the driver is. It's on the back left side. Most of them. What, what you'll see with Army and veteran and Air Force, especially Army guys, is they've got stickers and bumper stickers. They got their story everywhere. But most, I would say, I mean, I've looked at this for years. I'd say 85% of, of veterans, if they're Marine, will just have that one simple sticker. But you look at everything else and they got a storyline. So I went, I mean, this is a good, something you guys are talking about, the pull-up and all this stuff. So, you know, I got out of the Marine Corps, 92, went to Israel to study because I wanted, I was trying to get into Egypt to, at the universe, uh, American University in Cairo to study Arabic because I wanted to go back into, I planned to go back in the Army, go in the fifth group. That was the Middle Eastern. There's sure. a geography. Or we the, worked with plenty of guys in yeah, fifth group. So I'm going to go fifth group, do my time, then try out for Delta. That was that's I, I made this plan when I was 16, 17. So, but I couldn't get in. I, I ended up getting op, the uh, offer to go study in Israel. So I did. I'm like, oh, I'll go study in Jerusalem and do Arabic. Well, they made me do Hebrew. I'm like, I can't do two Semitic languages. That's too hard. So I did Hebrew for the year. Fantastic experience in Israel. I worked there locally at a gym. Uh, the biggest gym and because um, I got my fitness trainer thing um, <clears throat> that was awesome year and I got out went back met Mark Burnett this is before he got famous and went with him to uh, he had a bunch of SEAL guys went into this raid raid Gaulois in Madagascar came back did the Eco Challenge the first uh, 300 mile adventure race in Utah so I put a team together for that what I was trying to do is get back in the army but it was just for some reason in the 90s it was a slowdown it was just hard to get in well there was no war yeah so, I mean, I guess they, they, uh, had, they had the bombing the cut, of the barracks the and cut, there was Beirut. It was and the was... cutbacks and stuff like that. So I but, finally got in in 96. I, I got back in to the Army as a former Marine. And man, you talk about it. It was They put me in the 82nd because I was, I was a parachutist in the Marine Corps. And <clears throat> it was hell. Oh my God. Such a different Fayetteville. culture. Such a different culture. Yeah. You know, at lunchtime, you know, the pellet bars were out front of the barracks and I'd go, I wore my silkies because that's what we were famous for, silkies, I still wear them, do my pull-ups and go, I would go around Delta's compound, do the 10-mile run, come back, do pull-ups and everybody's gaming or something like that. And they just, what I found, I found the two different cultures, you know, and you may have kind of seen this, I, other than, you know, uh, Ranger units and the SF units, I was around a lot of those guys. I always felt like the Army had, a, they had a corporate mentality and they also didn't trust their own training. And the Marine Corps, yeah. you know, Marine Corps has, you know, they just, you had E3s, which are Lance Corporal. That is just the, you're just the average, you're just a. Yeah, average. but different. Every man's a rifleman. Yeah. Which, yeah. which allows, I mean, everybody's a trigger puller. Even if you're a, um, you know, a secretary or this or whatever, like you, one, you have to be able to pass the PT and you're a trigger puller. You were there as a rifleman. So. Um, but they also trusted. They trusted in you to execute. I mean, we did. 
And, and when I went into the Army, I mean, you, they had E6s, staff sergeants, doing what Marine Corps 10th 3E3s doing. So I found a really, I found just, I found just the fact that I was PTing at lunch created a lot of antagonism in the, you know, in the, Oh my <laughs> for working too hard mm-hmm. you're making uh, us look bad right uh, we ran into that all the time the, it, yeah it was something we we did a ton of stuff at fort bragg and worked a ton with the uh, with the army and there was definitely uh, a pervading thing of like don't make us look bad you know we're uh, oh, and, and it's uh it, it was different man like uh you know we had you know we come from a you know culture where it's you know go 100 miles an hour and those are the people we want to work with and uh it just you know i mean but when you get into something that's that big of a logistical mm. deal with that many mos's and that deal i mean it looks more like a corporation yeah whereas uh if you're going to go fight wars just go get a bunch of 18 year old marines who love to get marines mm. uh tattoos like i've never seen anybody with like an army so, of one or like you know uh, uh like i've never really seen i mean like I can spot Marines just because of the terrible tribals yeah. or the tattoos, you know, and you're like, God, bad tattoo clubs. Well, yeah. I mean, they, like I'll, I'll see tribals like, uh, George Bryant, uh, we went on that ride for, uh, with Matt Vincent for Indian. George is a like marketing guru. All of a sudden he like strips down and he's got tribal and I'm like, George, I didn't know you were Marine. And he's like, Oh yeah. You know? And it's like, <laughs> he's like, they make us in a, in a, in a factory. This is who we are. Yeah. And, uh, I've always, something, you know, something about it. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of de- life, you know, evolution you have after that. Well, there's also like kinship. Like if you meet other Marines, like it's, it's hilarious. Like two Marines meet on the street and they're like hugging and next thing you know, like they might've never served together. They might never know, but like they share that bond. Yeah. There's something there and it has to do, it happens in boot camp. I I still haven't been able to figure it out, but it's, it's there. It's unique. I think it still exists. You know, what's interesting is how far the Marine Corps evolved after, uh, you know, in the two thousands with all their, combat fitness test and then their mixed their martial arts program oh my god we didn't have that in we didn't have that at all uh, i did want to get to it maybe this is the wrong time but your emphasis on team on your projects mm. and that was something we had the opportunity to be a part of at callen's deal and did that originate in the marines or is no. it something you found when you met the two masons no no um that's a good way to describe that so uh 2015, you know, see, uh, 2016, I started, I invited the first, first apprentice to work with me. I brought him on the project in 2017. So I had this big project in Truckee. We had, uh, it was two seasons. It was a $4 million budget in the end. And, it, you know, there's, I had, uh, I had our crew, plus I had three apprentices, plus I was managing uh, all these other craftsmen, sculptors, blacksmiths, uh, lighting guys. These guys were all friends of mine I'd met. Um, in different states. So they're all what I call fellow craftsmen. What I did on the project for that one and the two preceding, what I, I started thinking about is how how do you how do I execute? I don't want to micromanage because I'm on site building too. So how do I execute in a way where I'm bringing out a guy's innate desire to to detail because the details matter. The details I always say details matter greatly. How do you get that out of people? And I really started thinking about that. So I came up with a couple of things. One is, how did the Marine Corps do it? So I just kind of went back. I called, I even called my buddy who was a 20-year uh, Marine. Uh, he got out as a, uh, I think he got out as a Lieutenant Colonel. No, Major. Um, and I asked him. I said, kind of reviewed with him. And what I figured out was this. And it worked brilliantly because I did it at the big project. Is I 
I did three, and I, I did three things. I started off by every guy that came onto the project, I did, a, uh, I call it scheme enhancement. So you go to a typical project, like with contractors, and they just start pointing to the subs or to the laborers, just do this, you know, do this, do that. What's the meaning? What's the purpose? They don't know. They're just, they're just nailing something in over there. I'm like, that's not good enough. So what I would do is I bring every guy in, even even the other trades, the lighting guy, the the blacksmiths, and I'd go over the whole project. We'd walk the site with them. I'd show them the plans. But I also showed them, I, I communicated to them what the purpose of this project was. Like we had a, we had a, a thematic purpose. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, we have a meaning for this project. So I, I told them that. We walked it. I showed them the plans. And then I sketched out stuff like that. So what they did is by the end of that hour, they were engaged in the full picture of the project and what it was. So when 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 they had something to do, whether it was the owner who's going to build the sculptures or it was one of my apprentices who I just needed to do these tasks over here, they knew it was part of something greater. So then step two, for like my apprentices and my guys, because everything we did in the projects was, was first time ever. It was, it was a technique I created called modern stonecraft. So... We had, I think we ended up having 360 tons of stone. It was all pre-cut. We, we set everything with vacuum lifters and machines. It was like big, huge Legos, right? No one's ever done that before. But um, we also had a timeline. We had six months. And I had all these details that were really important. So what I did was something I learned in Marine Corps was I communicated to them what the objective was. We call it, I think we call it terminal learning objective, whatever. I said, here's, here's what I want done. Here's the tools, you know, here's a grinder, here's a special saw, here's this chisel. <clears throat> I would say, and here's the detail I want. But I said, you know, and I would tell them like, this detail matters greatly, here's why. And then I'd make sure they understood it, they understood how to do everything. What I learned to do was what I learned in the cards. I walked away. I didn't sit there and, you know, I walked away. I literally would leave, go to the other side of the project or go in town. And then I energetically... I let these guys go at it. <clears throat> Here's a little trick I learned from, you guys ever heard Dan Doyle? Dan, Co- uh, Dan, Dan Coyle. Coyle. Yeah. Dan yeah. Coyle. Yeah, the talent code. Talent code. Um, him oh, yeah. and then the, uh, who are the guys that wrote uh, uh, about flow? Jamie Whelan, those guys. Oh, the flow state. Uh, so we have... Uh, we had Steve Cutler. Steve, Cutler. Steve Cutler. Okay, so between Jamie Whelan, Steve Cutler, Dan Coyle, because I was always reading all these books, because I always like... How do you get people to buy my vision? These projects were my vision. I mean, they're literally at my creation, my design. How do I get people to get to that level? Well, they had to have a sense of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And they also had to be engaged. I'm like, well, how do I engage them? So this, this is like th- step three. Is uh, I gave them all the tools, gave them purpose, gave them the task. But I walked away and I said, I said, we have this, this is a one-off. I said, you're the guy. And what I learned from these books is that if you set a, the bar higher than what they think they're capable of, and then you put some restriction on it, I mean, we got two hours of time or we're one man short today, but we got to get this done. People go into flow state more. And I've experimented this over and over. And I actually think it's true. So it's just the combination of I'm putting this bar higher and seeing the army, they always lower the bar. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps, yeah. they raise the bar and they say, meet that. We trained you. We expect that. And we're going to go away and we come back, da, da, da. So I watch these guys who'd never done any of this stuff before. I come back and they're just killing this detail that's on my website. Like it's something that some architects think it's the greatest detail. This is a brand new guy. I didn't do it. I just taught him. 
So, <clears throat> and then the other thing I did, you kind of, kind of saw this at, at the at the uh, photo or the video shoot, was I food. Food is big deal, man. We at that project we had a I had my buddy who's a canvas designer make a big wall tent, and then I built it on a deck. We had a coffee machine, we had a table, we had fans, and every day we had mandatory lunches. But I spent money on food. I didn't hold back, man. The thing I was amazed on is I imagined uh, we have a seat. I kind of pictured like a much bigger wall, so I was amazed at uh, how long it takes. I thought that I was like... Uh, well, they wanted to build a wall, but Callan was fucking lollygagging. Uh, well, yeah, uh, he was. Uh, he set one stone. Up well, uh, the word I like to use is "titty ball jack off." So I used to play. I had a high school football coach. I used to yell at us for playing "titty ball jack off," and when nobody knew what the fuck he was talking about. Um, so to this day, and I use it with DJ and these guys. They're like, I still don't know what "titty ball jack off" until I saw what Brian Callan did, which was nothing. Which is "titty ball jack off." He just was fucking around. You know, making it look like he was doing something while these guys were working. So, and had a hell of a time and a great sense of humor. So I can't be mad at him about that. Yeah. But glue guy, yeah, <laughs> glue guy. yeah. He, uh, but, you know, just just even that, you know. But that's like the food. So the what I found is that's the final bonding thing. Is so I took these guys, everybody that came. We had literally no budget for food, meaning no budget limit. Um, food was. I mean, we went out to pubs or. Uh, you know, dinner, if you feed your food. people, if you feel like I, I, I told this recently when um, when I was uh, first went to the Philadelphia Eagles, um, we were in Veterans Stadium. It was fucking awful food. Like it was uh, like something similar to like maybe what you get at the game. There'd be like hot dogs and shit. Oh. It was fucking terrible. So we never ate there. And so guys would like either I, I packed a lunch or we had to go get sandwiches for the old guys. And um, and then Andy Reid, who likes to eat. When we moved in the new facility, you know, built this bitch in kitchen and brought in a high-end chef. I mean, to the point where I met the dude and he's like, anything you want, just bring it in the morning and I'll make sure you leave with it. So I would bring him like a turkey uh, prime rib. I'd just bring him stuff and the dude would cook it. And so I didn't realize at the time how important the quality of food is, that it's a way of almost appreciation. Yeah. Like you cook somebody a nice meal, like you work hard, like it's a way of showing appreciation for me personally. I don't know how other people view it. Um, you know, it's like you go over to somebody's house for dinner and they put on an amazing spread. You go over to my brother's house and he does boiled chicken and you're like, fuck you. I'm not eating this. So there's like a, a an interesting boiled chicken. Oh yeah. My older brother was uh, my, not my middle brother. Ed, my oldest brother, Rob was like the king of like, oh uh, yeah, we're having boiled chicken and some, and, uh, you know, come over for dinner and fucking give you boiled chicken and uh, broccoli. I'd be like, ah, oh, you're an asshole. Uh, I'll, I'm just not going to eat. But um, then when I went to the Chiefs, all of a sudden, same deal, super cheap owners looking at the bottom line and the food was fucking awful. It was cold cuts and I was back to what we were. And I was like, and I used to tell people, I'm like, I know the reason we don't win games. I know why this team is never going to win. It's because of the way they treat us with the food. And people didn't believe me. Sure enough, Andy Reid goes there. They build a new facility, put in a bitchin' kitchen and they win a Super Bowl. And I'm telling you, at the Chiefs. At the Chiefs. Chiefs. Oh, so I played. I played for Andy at the Eagles, and then I went to the Chiefs with Dick Vermeil, and then Andy obviously went to the Chiefs. You know, they got Mahomes, and they put actually, you know, um, um, the our owner passed away, and his son took over, who you know wasn't nearly just hey, like we got money, let's fucking win, and open the, the checkbook. Next thing you know, well, that, that's interesting because there's something called new owner syndrome. And most people that get their hands on a professional team try to make a big trade or bring in a big guy. Well, but it sounds like a better move is to upgrade your facilities. Well, so, um, God, I'm, I'm totally dropping the name on um, um, 
Hunt? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so Mr. Hunt, who was, you know, I mean, uh, the Hunt Trophy for the AFC. I mean, he was a very nice man, but it was very bare bones in a lot of ways. He passes away, and Clark Hunt, who is his son, takes over, who, you know, uh, basically has always been very wealthy. And, uh, dude, like, opened it up and was like, let's fucking win. Money we have, Super Bowl we don't. Let's fucking remember my dad. And brought in coaches, brought in stuff, but they built a facility, dope kitchen, good food to win. So for me personally, when I went to the Chiefs, the fact that I showed up the first day and for lunch they had cold cuts, I was like, we're never going to win a fucking game. Well, and, it, and players didn't believe me. And I'm like, I'm telling you, if they invested in us and built a facility and we had a dope place to eat, players would win. And when you travel, nice plane, nice yeah. uh, nice facilities. Like, like while uh, people don't think that shit matters, it totally oh, matters. It totally matters. I mean, at the at this one job site, it was a it was a phenomenal experience because it was so so large. You watch the other trades. These guys were not on my... They weren't associated with me at all. They were a, another contracting firm, a landscape firm I brought in. Um, and these guys would go to the, the uh, gas station, grab a sandwich, go back, get on their phone, in their trucks. And then you talk, who argued the most of the projects was their crew, that crew. Who got who created them? Who had the most mistakes hitting gas lines, whatever? And these guys ate crap, but they ate in their truck. There was no... And we had everybody. I mean, sometimes there was 12 of us eating in the, around the thing. And sometimes we had wine, a little bit of wine. Then I may I would make coffee generally for everybody at the end, and um, then at night we would plan because some of these guys were flying in for like a seven day install. And then at night it's like, where do you want? We're going to do sushi. We're going to go to the pub or the you know bar and grill, whatever. But to this day, that's what I'm known for is like I don't fuck around with food, and uh, I don't fuck around with people's paychecks. I don't fuck around with food, and it's it has a phenomenal effect on bond, on engagement, etc. So. Just to summarize that that team thing, it was uh, scheme enhancement, um, raise the bar, raise the par on the expectations, give them the tools, put some sort of strict parameter on it to get them into flow state, walk away, you know, walk away and literally let them go at it. And then the, the, you top that all off with phenomenal food. Now it's kind of, it was a winning combo. Yeah. Sounds like a cross of football seminars. I know. I was getting the vibe. Uh, dude, we... Uh, High expectation. <laughs> we, uh, so one of the things for, for us as NFL players is like we like to go to dinner and we want to go to dope places. And I was real lucky. Uh, Tony Gonzalez, who, you know, we ran around a ton together. Uh, Tony always liked to go eat at cool places. And I was more than happy to go and, and uh, be his wingman. And uh, that was always important for me. I always uh, like I like trying new places. I like to go eat cool stuff. And so when we go teach across the football seminars... I would always tell him, be like, man, let's go someplace dope. And, dude, we had some uh, kick-ass, amazing dinners, and I got a chance to show these dudes on the seminar because we got to teach a ton of them. Not only some cool cool foods, but also some amazing places to eat. All over the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which is always cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, dude, I was thinking, like, uh, we were in a pub in, in Munich when we were there for uh, Oktoberfest. And we're sitting at this pub, and it's, you know, the Nazi party started in the beer halls of Munich. And we look up, and you can see where they chiseled out the uh, swastika on the ceiling. You know, didn't remove the beam, just chiseled it out. I mean, it was cool as we were having, like, schnitzel and drinking beer. And then we went, Pig roast. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it was great. And yeah. then Argentina. Yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. So our host actually owned a Trescaria. So we showed up, and uh, he's like, what do you guys want? I'm like, give me, like, the craziest shit that we would never get. So we had an entire three courses of entrails. It was, like, organs, <laughs> stomach. 
anything kidneys that were like kidneys, pretty bad. Yeah, like, but they brought us out just plates of just like it was uh, like a barbecued stomach. Uh, mm. Every oh, yeah. Yeah. there was a lot of good, but the kidneys were memorably bad. Well, just kidneys piss. are always bad because it smells it, like you got to soak them in milk. My mom used to do kidneys in milk, but I, I like that stuff, liver and all that in, uh, in pâtés. But um, but it, it was incredible. And then all of a sudden, like once we got done with that, they started bringing out the muscle meats and it was like everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like cuts that you never get unless you go to a butcher. So yeah, no one ever talks about like like uh, my buddy tells me because I love feeding the kids and like you know when the boys get done with the climbing gym I feed them at 11 o'clock at night or when my daughter is pregnant <clears throat> she wanted gourmet french toast at midnight and uh, I love I love cooking and serving food like that and he uh, Jared always says that uh, food is my love language yeah and I think it is I really do uh, I completely agree on that yeah um, I, dude yeah, I mean, uh, Chris Duffin was talking about his wife's cooking, and like, I practically teared up. I was like, it seems like the most amazing thing. Uh-huh. Jealous. Yeah, me too. Yeah. No, I mean, food's important. Uh, like, I mean, we were even just talking about the collective we just had. Uh, maybe next year doing uh, like a VIP dinner and like doing some stuff. I mean, when we would teach us, we, we would have, uh, so our capstone event for power athletes called the collective, but for years before, we had this huge event called the, uh, the symposium was open to everybody. This is just for our block one coaches. But we always had this dope VIP dinner. And then we started getting it catered and state classy meats basically sent us like a hundred of these like 40 ounce uh, buffalo tomahawk steaks. And this like world-class chef showed up and cooked. And that's why we have that big cauldron out there. He cooked everything. Mm. And it was probably one of the best dinners I've ever had. Like all these people in my house, there was wine, there was food and like some of the best steaks I've ever had. That was, uh, I mean, still to this day, some of my favorite events are those meals. I'd love to do one of those again. Right on, man. Yeah. Well, back to the training. A lot of our, our conversation was bringing in that transverse plane and the cool tools that you have. And you have this vision for it combining stone and gym and your architect, like your how your mind works. So explain to us this dream vision for gym. I'd love to help paint this picture for our audience. Are you talking about the, uh, what I called it like the art gym? Well, we, uh, I know we talked about, I mean, yeah. we, we, the, the way that um, uh, John and I met, actually, I got uh, me and Parsley and I can't remember who the other speakers were, but Brian Foodlies mm-hmm. put on this, what was it called? Freedom event? Free, yeah, it's like Freedom Rally. Brian so, Saunders. Yeah, Brian Saunders put on this event called Freedom Rally, and it was during lockdown. Uh, he September reached, 2021. Yeah, so he, he rented out this, uh, the same place that Lindsay Matthews had her... Um, birth fit, birth fit collective. Thing at collective, right? So he rented that deal out. It was uh, myself, Parsley, I want to say Zuby. You know, that guy, yeah. he's got a great Twitter. He's like a musician. He's JP like, no. Sears. Uh, JP Sears was there. <laughs> and then uh, two other speakers who I'm totally butchering. But the one guy I got that fourth turning from, which was an incredible uh, book. Mike uh, Dillard. Yeah. yeah. And so they asked us to come speak. Uh, didn't tell us what we were supposed to speak about. So uh, I was the, obviously... <laughs> the least known person. Uh, so he asked me to speak first and I got up and basically talked about, you've heard me say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have as an American, the things that are guaranteed to you and the, you know, the government, like they love to ask, like give us this, uh, uh, um, illusion that they grant us these rights. They don't, uh, if anything, you know, uh, the maker, whoever it is, you're inherently given these rights based off of, you know, John Locke's deal. Um, and the government, doesn't grant us these rights. These are our rights. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
and the government's there to guarantee that they don't infringe upon our rights. So like trying to, I know it's completely different than, than people look at it today, but they had zero fucking right to lock us down. Like, and what was amazing was how people were so quick to like kowtow to this. And so the event was just basically telling people, I'm like, you have to decide your level of involvement. You as the individual have the right to decide what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for you becomes. And um, I just, my whole talk was about personal responsibility, that uh, you have to be an educated consumer. You have to be able to, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll steal this from Rob Wolf. You know, the greatest form of rebellion is being healthy and strong enough to not have to enter the healthcare system. Hence the healthy rebellion. That's why it's a healthy rebellion. Uh, the greatest form of defiance is, uh, is exercise, physical health, avoiding sickness and illness, owning a home gym, you know, knowing where your food's sourced from. I like that. Uh, like, I mean, that, and so my talk was about these people. It's like, you know, you have all the tools available to you. Nobody is like, like you're waiting for somebody to hand this to you. No, these are, these are your God-given rights. Like the maker, whoever it is between you and him, this is who you are. These fucking people over here that are giving the illusion that they're controlling have zero fucking jurisdiction over you as an individual based upon if you believe within the you know the the bill of rights and the constitution and how our founding fathers put this thing together and um uh, you know so that's how i met john and then he reached out on social media and was like hey i heard you talk and then that's how we developed a bit of a friendship and then he was like hey uh i have this thing with brian kellum can i come build a wall and i'm like i got a lot of land and i got a whole bunch of fucking rocks and then he shows up and he's like dude you do have a lot of rocks yep. <laughs> he was thinking he was gonna have to truck in the stone i'm like no no, no i got a plan like there's so much stone around here like i was just like i, I did a uh on sunday i walked down to the creek and then walked all the way to where that new bridge is which is at our property line and then went back up to the school and walked around just looking for rock piles there are so many rock piles around here like we could build anything yeah. like like it's it's amazing well, how much rock is here two things we talked about was uh doing a workshop that's one thing doing a workshop because uh, what people enjoy, and this is this leads into that idea of a, what I kind of call. I had this idea in 2015 in Seattle, was a gym where you combine. It's a little bit off the subject, but it's I don't know if that's what you're talking about. It's a gym where you combine movement with everything that's built in the gym is built by craftsmen. Because I have a high, <clears throat> I mean, I have a real focus on beauty as a human need. <clears throat> beauty is. <clears throat> There's so much what I call, there's so much division, ugliness, and uncertainty in the world. So then my purpose is to bring order, beauty, and uh, wonder and awe. Those are two emotions. They're very important emotions. And um, <clears throat> I'm kind of doing this whole study right now, uh, Sir Roger Scruton, and I'm listening to this other guy about beauty, the ethics of beauty. So then I always thought like, because <clears throat> I had this outdoor gym I had up on this bluff above the Pacific, about 200 feet above the Pacific in Carpinteria. And I would go up there I'd set up all my logs, my kettlebells, and I'd work out on this bluff looking over the ocean, watching killer whales, dolphins, surfers. And it was just, I was in this flow state of this. It was literally the best place I've ever worked out in my life. So <clears throat> one of the ideas I had one time is, is isn't there a way, and I, I don't know, is there a way to make a gym where movement is beautiful? It's not just just lifting something like there's in that that has to be that 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 movement has to have some sort of form that forces it into something beautiful so i always had this idea one day of connecting with guys like you who understand you know uh the ins and out of strength training bringing craftsmen in 
to build things that are based off movement. But the whole idea is it's it's a the person doing it is engaged in not just in art, move art art of movement or movement you know, artistic movement, but also the outcome. You know, like the everything instead of concrete balls, they're they're granite, hand sculpted. And metal, and then the, yeah. that was the other piece. Um, so one of the the drawings I did when he when we got done talking was uh, I wanted to build a steel Conan wheel, like actually like have like a, you know some form of like capping, like some form of stone on the ground, and then have like a steel spike, and then obviously come out with like a steel deal, and then make like a metal cart or like a, a basket where you could load stones in, and then do like Conan wheel. And then uh, obviously like bending tubes or, uh, you know, like a DOM and in terms of like this to be able to go up over and weld. And so being able to combine different medians of like stone structure like this, but then also where you traverse, where you execute one and then you have to physically traverse to the other one using, you know, metal and stone and basically build like an outdoor aesthetic training facility. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, it's super personal. You even have like my, like, canvas walls out that can move and flow because i think for me i i've always been i'm in the ring choir specific moments man where the aesthetics like one time we did this x uh x fill, or, uh, x fill in the morning out of the swamps and we we're in these rigid boats <clears throat> and i remember we got in the boats and you had to sit on these uh pads because uh to protect your back i forget what the kind of boats were they had these twin outboard motors and the fog bank was down about 20 feet and I remember just these boats, perfect, the coxswains were just going perfectly. I remember the rooster tails coming out of them and the sun was coming up. For me, it was just, it was like I was in moving art. And I, to this day, I can remember every moment of it. I was just like, no one's talking. We're all just going out of the swamp area, just perfect like that. Rooster tails, fog, light blue and all that stuff. It was just a real aesthetic moment. I had another one like that when we were doing this other practice mission at night had to do with helicopters i just remember the colors but you're moving and so i always wondered like is it possible to bring all that into something because you're getting added something added to the physicality of whether it's uh, you know if it's a strength training is meeting the, the need for beauty and i'm and, and i've thought about this for years because i think it's one of the things that's been under attack i think it's so critical but it's not discussed other the other than in like certain uh, you know high academia like Sir Roger Scruton is just a thinker but he's not mainstream so now now it's really more prominent you know we're since especially since the whole COVID thing it's just how much ugliness there is yeah. not just in the architecture of the 20th century just ugliness period yeah and in with the people too yeah I mean uh, yeah. I I've never in my life seen. Um, people abandon humanity and like understand like the uh you know like this idea of like ideology and pointing fingers and this and like you know just so it's fucking it it was gross it's the only word i know for it gross and i don't use that word very often but it was fucking gross and i think that that time like uh when i do some reflection back on that um the time i try to focus on was uh when we were in that lockdown and the fact that like uh, which I think was hilarious because we did brew with the brew with the crew, and then Luke basically like after the second one basically got sick and never did another one. But we just kept doing it anyway, which we should have just abandoned it because it was his idea. I had a great time. Yeah, but we got up every morning. We would just do like a kind of a live kind of like, hey, uh, you know, here's day two of normalcy. We're just getting up early. We're going to bullshit a little bit and we're going to go back. And our audience would have coffee with us. Yeah, and have coffee. And on Friday afternoons, we would drink beers. Beers with the crew. crew. And um, but. 
the thing I remember was that like my kids were home. Like I remember we didn't have Netflix. We actually bought Netflix. I finally paid for it so we could watch some stuff. We started watching um, Heartland, which was like this horse show out of Canada that my daughter wanted to watch. And at first I was like, God, oh, this sucks. And then by like, I think it was like the second week I was like, what time are we watching Heartland? <laughs> so like, I'd like, we'd get trained training and go, oh, do I it. can live with it if you can. And, uh, but like, I like, I remember how cool it was that like, you know, we got a chance to like really just kind of bond with the kids. But then we also live in a bit of a, a like a wonderland in that, you know, the whole world was locked down, but yet we still lived here on a ranch in Texas where like we still had a gym, we had all of our stuff. Yeah. It was just like the kids were home for the summer and yeah. didn't have to go to school. So I try to focus on that. But when I look at like, and you hear people um, just even today with some of the narratives and like running in like the I went to back to school night and ran into the headmaster and some of the um, um, people from my kid's school that I got into with a little bit over some email exchanges on like COVID and the variants and this and asking them questions on this and this to the point where all of a sudden it just bailed, boiled down in these emotional arguments and I had to just fucking tap out or it would have just got real toxic and they're still weird about it. And I want to be like. See, like you guys were so emotional, but yet that was how we were being pushed into it. Yeah. And so as I think back on it, it just feels gross. But I do remember the cool part of being able to like hang at home with my kids. Yeah. So, but uh, I, as we connected the idea of doing a seminar and like really workshops to not only use piece of here of the ranch cleaning it, you know, like basically carving out a place to build something really cool and then incorporate it with something within the training facility, a power athlete in the gym and kind of do an interesting crossover where we do some physical training, teach some movement and some of the things that you're discussing in terms of rotation, transverse plane, frontal, sagittal, being able to understand, you know, unilateral, bilateral loading and teaching a little bit of this stuff and then setting people loose to build something yeah. that's in lasting and, and something amazing. Well, and it's uh, like, and I'm fucking in. Yeah, yeah. It's like how many, you ask a lot of guys in, in the dry stone world, what they love so much about it besides, besides the permanence of the outcome, you know, because I, I give a multi-generational warranty. And the only reason that I do that is to stoke someone's question. What do you mean? That means I'm giving you it. Basically, it's an unending warranty. As long as no machine comes in or damages it, you know, you, 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 this has this has a three. You know, it's, I'm building for 500 years. All it is is meant to just get them to think differently. But you ask most guys why they love it, including myself, is the physicality. I mean, what what else do you get to do where you get to be so physical? But what's the end outcome of that? It's something that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then you have the finality of the project. And you have, so you're building beauty. You're building permanence through your physicality. So <clears throat> that's the idea for this workshop. Um, I thought it'd be so fascinating is to, you know, bring people through more of an educated thing like what you guys are, you guys specialize in, but uh, put it into, a, um, you know, it's a, it's a practical application. That's the word I'm looking for practical application. And then it's people, if they could build like a portal where they're, they're Dude, basically wrapping stone. I have, form. uh, it was, as soon as he talked about it, I sent him a picture for exactly what he's talking about because I've always imagined, um, on the other side of our Creek and I took you down there. Yeah. Like if you go down through the road, through like the, uh, the covered area and you cross the Creek, there's an area between where our property line runs into this massive Oak tree. It's been there. Like it's, it's, it's like this gigantic Oak tree. It's, 60 foot high. I mean, it's been there for, you know, let's say hundreds of years, right? Um, there's a, an area between that that I wanted to do it. And uh, what's wild is if you stand there, 
um, you can see where the sun effectively sets within, no, I'm sorry, So when the sun rises in the equinox, so it rises in the east. So there's a where we can stand and I can watch where the sun, and I try to do this every couple of weeks, I'll go out there and just kind of stand and I basically can track where we are within the year, basically where the sun rises. And I thought it would have been super cool to like clean it off and put like a Stargate portal that allows you to see like the, uh, you know, the uh, winter equinox. Yeah. The way you do that is uh, on uh, whichever day. Uh, oh, it's December 21st. I mean, in, or June 21st, you yeah. you go out and you, the, the way they would do it when they built castles is they put a steel ring and as the sun came up, they plant it. Yep. They plant that and they, they side alignment like you're looking through uh, uh, fixed sites. You know, and that's that's you would line that with the uh, June twenty first sunrise, and that's and then that's how you start to build. So in so June, what, like in, steel in June, the sun rises right right there. In yeah. the winter, it rises over my right shoulder. So whichever so, one you want, so, you just order yeah. it. So, so where, but where in a castle? That would be the front, the back. Well, like, uh, you know, well, well. So the Vi- uh, so the Vikings always celebrated. Uh, the winter solstice was or winter is coming. Well, uh, no, it, it was the long. It was the shortest day of the year. Oh. Is the winter equinox? Sol solstices are the even days. The equinoxes, I think, are the longest and the shortest. Right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds good. Right? Yeah. So the the winter equinox. No, I thought I'm messing this up. Hold on. Oh, open your computer. Okay. Well, if well, we make a rival gym to equinox, we can call it solstice. solstice. Yeah. So, uh, but the equinox, yeah. which I believe is the is the sh- the what shortest day? is the shortest day of the year. So the sun sets because if you notice, uh, every morning when I come to the gym, um, when we when we open that door, I always stand there and I look to see where the sun is coming up. So the sun in the win- in the summer is over here, and then it's basically over here to the right uh, during the winter. And what's wild is from that spot, there's a clear view across the creek of where the sun comes up. So I thought it would be bitching to put the portal basically f- to, to, you know, commemorate the winter but yeah, you have a, solstice. So they have that. Or equinox. Have that workshop, you know, where people get to put in the practical application of what they're learning in, in a class with you guys into doing a technique where they're learning the old sacred rules. Because the old sacred rules are so amazing to understand and and what's awesome about building like that is no matter what the conditions are no matter what your mood is um we had to build through the winter one time um snow wind no matter what the external environment is no matter what your emotional environment is the stress on if you follow the rule you could be under great duress that day in extreme weather if you follow the rule your outcome will always be beautiful the rules the rules if you would this is i think is so cool about you know, kind of about life. If you follow those ancient sacred rules in dry stone, you can't help but have a powerful outcome. Yeah, no, I'm, <clears throat> you know, I love the idea. I mean, so, it, it was funny when we when he pitched it. I'm like, I got a perfect piece of land. Like, uh, you know, I mean, we have a ton of, of of available property, but I have such a cool spot. It's like one of the the neatest places I've been um, on our property. And like, there's this just bitching oak and like it all kind of set up. And as soon as he said it, I was like, man, I'd be bitching to have a stargate. Seven people. And then uh, I bought a. Um, so if I scored a weld cap, he's like, Hey, you got to make a, like a cauldron, like a, a fire pit. So I scored that and I sent it to him. I'm like, I got my first piece. Now we got to put this thing on and, uh, potentially push it out and get some dates done. And, you know, I know set a date and, um, see if we can push it out to people yeah. because I think one, it'd be an amazing experience in terms of the training aspect. Like 
you know, 7 a.m. from 7 to 8.30, we're going to talk about the training. He's going to brief the, the job site from 8 to 9, and then from 9 to that, we're going to go build this thing. And uh, and eat a lot of good food together. Yeah, yeah. and bring Absolutely. some cool food out. But what? how many people? You need seven people well, per seminar? Seven, like, you know, if we're going to do it the way I showed you the design would be for the portal, which is, uh, you know, the big moon gate, it'd be about 10 foot outer diameter. It's seven for that. Once that's built, the patio portion with a couple side bench walls, mm-hmm. um, seven. And then if there's a spot down here, down there, one of the greatest things to build besides the portal is this, is a freestanding wall. It's it's magic to build a freestanding wall with the bond stones. They're called through stones, seven. And, <clears throat> and the reason why is when you do a workshop like that, that's how I got into this. I did a workshop in 2008. We built a 40-foot bridge at a, at a stone yard um, um, with two master masons from uh, Ireland and Ottawa. And it was a five-day experience, immersive, and that's where I that's where I, where I discovered this whole field. And the immersion portion all the way to completion is important. And the way you immerse people is you don't have too many of them. Mm. That means everyone stays busy. Some people stay busy, whether it's five days or two weekends. They stay busy, but they have to be there for the outcome. And the outcome on a portal is once you set the keystone in, that's the top stone and then you, the side pieces, when you, pull a, when you pull your false work, that's your woodwork that you're building around, I don't care who you are. That is that is a powerful moment because you just def, you're def, you're defined. But I like to say you're working with gravity. Mm-hmm. So your your whole feature is in a constant state of falling. But because you learn to harness gravity as it's you know you, you can look at it different ways. It's really magical. So always seven people allows for everyone to stay busy. <clears throat> allows for me to um, uh, make sure everyone's getting something powerful out of it because you want that immersion that flow state. Flow state to me is really, I achieve it a lot with stonework. And when you're in flow state with stonework, it's like one of the most awesome experiences. So seven, start with the portal once that's built. Then the patio, seven people. And then becomes power athletes, uh, you know, hang out. Yeah. Hang out area. Do go over there. sacrifices. Yeah, well, well, I mean, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, like... I'm not going to say that we're going to sacrifice people. Pigs. No, pigs, but pigs. Uh, I was imagining like um, they would be cool to actually do a spit roast. We could because uh, with the cauldron and and uh, the design I wanted to do is um, I wanted the ability to be able to move it up and down. And I got some other cool ideas, but yeah. I thought it would be bitching to be able to actually set it up in the stone and be able to do a spit roast, which we could, you know, uh, kill a pig, skin the pig. Got the pig. Or spit host roasted. a collective dinner. Who knows? Uh, dude, that would be in a perfect world. Like, uh, have the whole thing set up, put like hanging torches and like, you know, some fire stuff and actually have like a bitching cocktail party out there. Yeah. I'm in. I, dude, I, uh, one, I want to learn. I know how you like deadlines. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I do like the idea of, next year? of learning the collective. Yeah, October or September, September. rather. But I mean, uh, I'm just more fascinated by, um, actually the practical application of like the training stuff with that we deal with um and then being able to like take that and be like okay hey this is what we're moving in terms of like uh this type of loading this is the movement pattern now let's go out and actually use it within a real setting like within the building stuff that seems like such a rich experience to me and the parallels to to sport at the highest level as we've seen it so such finesse and and perfection within a skill set that then is is built upon a fundamental and a foundational of movement. And the wildest thing is we have so many rock piles around this ranch. 
It is it like uh, like it's the craziest thing. Like when you showed up, you, I was like, no, I got a bunch of rocks. And you're like, holy shit, you do have a bunch of rocks. Like there's random piles of rocks. But that then I'm what's like, great about that is put, put people who aren't uh, real bodily aware or have good stabilizer muscle awareness. I call them stabilizer. And load a, load a single, uh, single wheel wheelbarrow up with rock and it's a little bit offset and have them go over rough terrain. And you'll, you'll find people's capacity. Whether yeah they figure it out real fucking real quick fast. they either can't control and they dump or people i mean it's great just a wheelbarrow of rock i've always wanted to do stone games actually actually stone games you know that are based on skill set but also on, on prowess <clears throat> so just louis like simmons that. had a bitchin uh wheelbarrow i don't know if uh, text you didn't see it but it uh they basically had like looked like a concrete wheel almost and then what they did is they obviously had some form of like uh, capture, and then they welded two pipes to it, and then had like a bat, like a uh, deal with like, I want to say some expanded metal. So when you lifted it up, I mean obviously the thing was fucking heavy, but you could load stuff within the center. I mean it was like an antique wheelbarrow. What probably would uh you know I mean a thousand years ago they used before the you know with the wheel, but like that thing, I remember when we first went out there to Westside. Louis busted that thing out, and I'm like, this is like the hamster wheel of death. And uh, so when he starts talking about these wheelbarrows, I'm like, hmm, we could make some shit. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, and, that, and that's part of the fun and of, uh, of, of, uh, for people to do these. Because this, this would be like this, a workshop like this would be. Uh, How many uh, days? You said five days. So we'd have to do like a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday kind of a deal? I, th I think if I planned it right and did some of the pre-staging of stuff, uh, five days, um, full days or two weekends. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's like, it could be like the precursor to one day a this art gym yeah you know no i i dude i i uh, look forward to um you finding somebody who's like i want you to build this outdoor training space because i got a ton of ideas mm -hmm. and i think between you know the stuff that we do with metal and you do with stone i think we could do a really neat combination of something that just will last a long long time yeah have you been to the stark center in austin no so it's the Museum of Physical Culture, mm -hmm. something along those lines. It's at UT's football stadium. So they have all the old strongman equipment. And I left and actually made a barbell, which is actually at Sornex now. We, we donated to Sornex's uh, outdoor. Center? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a, it's a entire kind of uh, museum of just equipment that they were able to get from like the turn of the century mm -hmm. and pictures. And uh, I left there with just like, I know exactly what I'm building. And we built this bitch and barbell that we used at the symposium. Uh, we filled the, uh, I took weld caps, um, like the end caps for big pipes, welded them together. And then, uh, basically we sleeved a barbell kind of made it. I mean, it was, it came out super cool and then remember, filled it with rocks. Remember that uh, video I sent you, the Pakistani that doing that traditional pre-wedding. Oh yeah. I mean, just that to me, the movement, his execution of that was beautiful. Like the, you know, from the, from the squat, he had his long and I like that guy. I follow this guy in Basque country, uh, Spain. He's a stone lifter. You know, they still do. Uh, so they had traditional, uh, they developed sports off rural traditions mm -hmm. in, in Basque country. Uh, it wasn't just stone lifting. <clears throat> but these guys train now. They have leather pads. They roll. They train. <clears throat> and uh, But their their execution is flawless. And that's what I think. That's where the beauty comes in. It's like that Pakistani guy lifting this, God knows, I don't know how many kilos that was. But it's so beautiful from that to the final final uh, one arm double arm thrust I don't know if I saw you that but that's the kind of thing I think is is what I'm after is that's stone that means that's get that 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 is, has its own story how long it takes to do a, um, a stone sphere it takes a long time I got guys that can do it in Seattle it's a, it's a machine that does that 
And then you take that and you put the grips in it and then you have to then, you know, maybe, who knows, a year. You know, so those are the kind of things I think about for a gym is these kind of movements that are fluid, that are beautiful, but it's really, it's always in the realm of strength training. Well, I mean, think about the, what is it? The, uh, um, the Hoosevelt stone, the Denny stones. I mean, there's oh, yeah. these uh, no. different stones that, you know, the, the Hoosevelt stone, I think was, uh, there was an old priest that used to lift the stone to try to block the uh, sheep pen. And like the dude was super strong and then that became a strong man event and, uh, you know, or the Denny stones, you go out and you, you know, they have the rings on them. But I mean, there's a reason that people travel all over the world and these things exist so, I mean, the, uh, um, who was it? Um, was it, uh, Ed Costner where we talked about, uh, there were the fisherman stones on, on the beach. So as a fisherman, you showed up and if you could lift the stone, you got a full portion of pay. If you could lift the next stone, it was a half a quarter. And then if you couldn't lift any of the stones, you were considered worthless and couldn't get on the boat. <laughs> so that was how they gauge pay was how much you could lift. So, I mean, this is something extremely yeah. primal within our DNA, um, you know, the idea of building something structure, but being able to incorporate it with actually some interesting, fun training and going and building something amazing with uh, a ton of the rocks that we have that are natives to this ranch in this area. It seems like an amazing opportunity, man. I'm excited for it. We just got to push it out to the world and see if we can get just seven people. Seven people, man. Well, I guess technically five, right? One, two, two. I'm in five more. Yeah. We just got to get some more. I don't count in that seven. Yeah. Right on, man. Yeah, we're in. But no, it seems like a good time. But uh, at the end of the day, too, um, I'd love to have more. Like if we had seven people there and we get to teach this and actually just be able to be there and help, but like, you know, get involved as well. Yeah, I, I want to acquire the skill. I think it's, I, dude, I think it's super cool. Um, yeah, wait, I, wait till you, uh, you know, I, I want people to experience things like using a tracer to split a stone by hand or feather and wedges where you split it with a feather and wedge. You get to watch it crack. I mean, it, all that stuff's just... It's really even even if you've been doing it, it's still fun to to just to be able to use carbide steel and a hammer and uh, split something with a curved face or just to split it because you need it. It's very super satisfying, extremely awesome. satisfying. Well, cool, man. Well, uh, well, well, we'll use this podcast. We'll push it out okay. and uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll push it out some um, you know within your context and also the you know within our power athlete you know uh, ecosystem and so the see goal if we can put this for uh, September 2023 it'd be dope if we had a year to do it yeah. think, think we got it yeah oh yeah yeah we're in let's do it man alright and that is another episode of Power Athlete Radio bye bye